you have voters that support these kinds of leaders because they're uh, legitimately frustrated with the old sort of liberal capitalist order, but they end up voting for folks who continue the systems of economic exclusion, but gain their popularity, gain their crisis through politics that undo previous politics of inclusion. Welcome to BungaCast. I'm Alex Hokuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Turkey, India, Hungary, Brazil, the Philippines. Erdogan, Modi, Orban, Bolsonaro, Duterte. The first three are still going strong. They've been in government for a decade or more. But what unites these figures? They're all right-wing and authoritarian, but also popular and anti-establishment. And how similar are these politicians and political groups to those in the core of global capitalism? Might they even be seen as forerunners of developments in the rich world? And to what extent are they able to resolve the crises of the end of the end of history? This is all in today's episode, in which I interview two of the editors of a new book, Cecilia Lero and Tamás Gerich, who, together with Fabio Luis Barbosa dos Santos, are responsible for the edited volume The Radical Right, The Politics of Hate on the Margins of Global Capital. So that's what you're about to hear right now. All right. Hello. I'm here with Cecilia Lero and Tamas Geroch. Uh, Tamas, you'll recognize, perhaps, if you've been a longtime listener of BungaCast, he was on back in episode 33, talking about Hungary's illiberal democracy. And it's a first-time visit for Cecilia Lero. Uh, welcome both. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having us. Hi. It's great to be here. So I would ask you, maybe, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself. Cecilia, why don't you go first? Sure, I'm Cecilia Lero. I'm a political scientist, but also have a background in uh, community activism and NGO work. I have my PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and I did my postdoc at the University of Sao Paulo. All right, and Tamás? Yeah, uh, so I'm Tamás Gerich. I'm happy to, to be back in, in, in your show. Well, I'm, I'm a political economist and a historical sociologist, um, Dealing with with uh, issues you mentioned, the kind of illiberal regime in Hungary and in Eastern Europe, in a, in a broader scope, and well, I, I finished my PhD in Hungary at the Corvinus University of Budapest, and I'm in another graduate program in Binghamton, State University of New York, and a little bit I'm shifting my focus to Eastern Africa from Eastern Europe, but that's another story. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, maybe we'll have to talk about that towards the towards the very end. Um, but yeah, so we're here to talk about your book, uh, "The Radical Right: Politics of Hate on the Margins of Global Capital." It's an edited collection, um, edited by you two, along with Fabio Luis Barbosa dos Santos, who regular listeners will also recognize. Um, who uh, Fabio has been on a couple of times on this podcast before, um, and. Your book concerns primarily five countries, um, five countries of the global periphery or semi-periphery, and 
these all these countries, I mean, as you're at pains to say in the introduction and throughout the book, that um, they're rather different, um, but nevertheless are somehow united by this uh, politics of hate that has um, at least one. Uh, significant elections in in the countries, if not, led to um, significant transformation of those countries' polities. So um, maybe, Cecilia, if you wouldn't mind giving us a sort of overview of the book, what are the countries involved, um, what are the themes explored in the countries, and what's the objective of the book? Sure. So as your listeners will know, we're passing through a, a unique time in history where we're seeing the resurgence of a trend of authoritarianization um, and it coming at a time when I think a lot of us were in this feeling that, okay, it's the end of history, liberal democracy is where it's at and, and it's just development from there. And we're seeing um, that this simply isn't true. And uh, for us, uh, this phenomenon has gotten a lot of tension in the global north. Of course, Trumpism, Brexit, um, uh, several far-right nationalist movements. But we also see this trend in the global south. Um, and the the implications of it in the south are arguably very important because when you have countries that are even more precarious in terms of social safety nets, in terms of weak institutions, in terms of, of um, weak states and, and uh, uh, weak control of, of widespread social violence, the implications for what happens to citizens' lives is very dire. And so this book came about as the result of a collaboration between uh experts on five countries, so uh, Turkey, Hungary, India, the Philippines, and Brazil, that all are going through this sort of uh, phenomenon of this, what we can call a, a strongman leader, uh, what some might call a populist leader, what some might call uh, authoritizing leaders. But uh, for us, the real definition is we, uh, we, we, we're looking at countries on the margins of global capitalist development um, where we have these extreme leaders that we uh, classify as uh, right-wing. So those who um, um, are not looking, despite the rhetoric, are not looking to transform society into sort of any kind of progressive or egalitarian way. Uh, and that and, and we went through this two-year-long process of drawing the comparisons, the differences, and understanding uh, uh, the reasons behind uh, how they got to power and the kind of performances they put on in order to maintain that power, as well as the results and and uh, uh, opposition movements. And so uh, we identified five sort of big uh, themes throughout these five countries. So uh, we see these folks as having to come to power when their countries are at a different, in a different place as opposed to where countries in the global north were. So uh, uh, these explanations that we often hear from the north in terms of uh, it's the rise of globalization that's turning into or resulting in widespread uh, uh, social disaffectedness and and uh, a lack of confidence among those who are previously privileged, 
leading to the uprising of sort of a disaffected working white class. This is obviously not not uh, applicable in most of our societies. Mm. What we find is the rise of this idea of a class identity through consumption. And so we find uh, similar across all the cases a really uh, a, a pronounced role for a rising middle class or some would call a rising precariat. Mm. Um, we see uh, the use of culture war. So the creation of an enemy and the vilification of that enemy in order to define whatever the state may be in terms of, uh, 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 as, a, as a creation, as a, as a cultural construct of these leaders to justify their extreme measures. We find yeah. governing uh, via constant crisis, uh, the centrali- centralization of political power combined with the liberalization of economic power. Interesting. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. so like, I mean, these are all themes. I, that's already a kind of great overview in terms of um, a lot of the themes that you know could be talked about. And I'm going to try to come on to most of those. Actually, um, I find them pretty interesting, and sometimes things which are not always talked about um, in terms of the examination of these leaders, um, and not just leaders, but in certain cases, political parties, political movements. But I wanted to perhaps ask a slightly obtuse question, maybe to Tamash. Uh, the thing that maybe stands out. And I'm going to do the obvious thing of just focusing on the title. And you might go, well, that's just the book's title. But <laughs> the the question of hate, um, because is that really what unites uh, these political forces? Is that what we find in common? Um, why hate specifically? It seems that uh, any politics worth its name, something that um, generates popular passions, would be in part uh, have an affect of, of hate, a hatred for one's enemies. Um, what is particular about this? What, or maybe just justify the use of hate as a way of um, kind of slapping a label on these very different movements and forces and parties? Well, yeah, this is a great question. And maybe you can confess, we, we had a long discussion on what, what title or other what like a general framework or buzzword or concept we want to use that could apply to to each of these cases from from even from a from a more like a broader global perspective and uh, it was not an easy choice because because as Cecilia said on the one hand there are, there are these these features we can compare and and we find things that are rather similar amongst these cases but on the other hand there are there are also like differences so we actually didn't really find a particular concept, let alone an academic concept that could just describe each cases. Um, so the the hate is, is 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 something like it's it's not not really a concept per se, but it's 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 a very characteristic feature which is peculiar um, in each cases, although I would would not argue that that should be like the main description for each cases. It's 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 something that does does unite them a bit, but also goes beyond their their particular politics and sheds some lights in a way on on other global aspects or other global features, which 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 uh, also like like uniting them or 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 probably instead of saying uniting them put them on the same global map in a way and and i think we also wanted to emphasize that these are not just simple separate cases that we comp- 
compare and wow, we figured out that the kind of hate politics of hatred or hate speech or any kind of uh, uh, political movement organized uh, around the hatred towards towards another political group is 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 wow, it's it's all over the place and that's the only unique thing. It would rather uh, help help us to really understand them as as as, as in a way. Uh, even connected cases, like like part of these kind of larger global processes, mm-hmm. uh, that you know translate or create or sh- shape both the kind of similarities in there in in these cases as as well as as uh, the kind of peculiar politics we would see, which might actually that could also be quite different. You could you could you, we could name a lot of differences as well when, you, for example, compare. Hungary to to Brazil or, or or to the or to the Philippines. So this hatred is, is 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 a part of the story, and it's an important part because because we kind of wanted to talk about a global story as well, uh, a global story from from the perspective of of these regions, these countries, the global south and the global east. Also, a little bit speaking towards or in contrast with with these more general western or nordic centric notion of what's going on what even illiberal regime or authoritarianism as a concept might entail because we have of course a lot of knowledge and a lot of literature and a lot of discussion on that but we found like these are usually a little bit biased so when we wanted when we wanted to have this global perspective we really you know, we really had to delink ourselves from this kind of a Western-centric approach. Um, so, in a way, this hatred is, is is part of this story, but it's also part of the global story. So, it somehow helped us to kind of put put these, in a way, uh, you know, uh, colorful dif- different cases on the map and see how you know how they, we are all part of of this global story i think i think probably I, I i wonder if cecilia would agree with i what i just said that that was my conclusion of this this process of, of actually a pretty long discussion of how do we even want to name this what what is the kind of framework that will really mm. unite these regions uh that are in in, in a way also different yeah, I mean, I, I I note also, I think this is in the introduction, you kind of give a, a list of categorizations, I think, which are important ones. I, I don't necessarily disagree with any of them, um, but it's maybe worth talking them through. And if you want to pull out some examples from, you know, Hungary to the Philippines or indeed any of the other, you know, the three other countries discussed in the book, um, because it's something which I think everybody who's talked about um, the new right, <laughs> even that, you know, uh, has <laughs> is, is subject to question about whether you call it the new right. Of course, that was a term that was used with uh, you know in respect of, of Thatcherism, effectively um, 30, 40 years ago. So in any case, but you know um, to talk about figures like Modi, like Erdogan, um, like uh, Duterte, Bolsonaro, and er- and Orban, um, you classify them as popular authoritarian. They mobilize hate and fear, which is something that we already you know, just touched on, and right wing on social issues and the economy, something that uh, Cecilia has already nodded at. So I wanted to maybe focus specifically on those first two terms, popular and authoritarian. Um, I think the popular popularness, the popularity of these regimes um, and politicians uh, should be should maybe be brought to the fore. So maybe if you want to comment on that, um, bring in some examples. Sure. So. Uh, it's important to distinguish that when we say popular, we're not 
necessarily talking about the popular classes, although that's part of it, but that all of these folks won elections more or less legitimately. So they're, they have a real base, they have real followings. I think a lot of times there's um, uh, perhaps a base on hope among progressives that, oh, people just follow these folks because uh, they're internet trolls or it's just, you know, mm. a subsect, a really vocal subsect, like a noisy minority. But they have real uh, popular, deep-seated support in their various communities. And so... And we're not the first to point these out, but uh, the the wave of authoritarianization that we see now is different than during the Cold War when you had violent coups and sort of a sect of the military that takes over. The way that we need to understand the the distinction between what is democracy and what is dictatorship, I think we need to take a, a bit more nuance because elections can happen. These folks can be elected legitimately through uh, through uh, free and fair elections but uh, act in a way that absolutely closes democratic space and then go on to use these tools of fomenting hate, fomenting fear in order to justify that closure of democratic space. Um, And so uh, this goes to say that, you know, for a long time, the way that especially the West tried to encourage or export democracy was focused on free and fair elections. We have elections and okay, done deal. Um, But it's not enough. To, to safeguard democracy. And then we also need to look at not only the, the uh, strategies or characteristics that these guys use, but also at the reasons why uh, their rhetoric is so so uh, attractive, unfortunately, to so many of our common citizens, of our fellow citizens. Yeah, Thomas, you want to reflect on anything? I mean, maybe in, in, in Hungary, how... You know how popular is Orban? Um, not just in terms of you know polling numbers or th- something like that, but you know how much, to what extent does he capture um, and is able to channel a certain popular resentment or um, you know f- kind of popular feelings from those who are excluded or outside in some conception? Yeah, he does have a popular movement, and and that's actually. Uh, quite big, surprisingly big. Just maybe it's it's an illustration, but in the in the most recent elections, they they did achieve to mobilize the the largest number of electorates that anyone has ever been able to mobilize in Hungary since the regime changed. So it's it's it really raises a lot of questions about like questions of legitimacy or questions of of popular politics uh, under under these regimes. Um, but the other thing is which I wanted to to bring in. Um, that's a kind of concept we work with my my co-author colleague Agnes Gaji, with whom we, we we co-authored this this chapter. Is uh, this kind of an interesting, um, almost like a class dynamics in Hungary since since the regime regime change, which is a very, which is which is really uh, mobilized around very deep rooted um, antagonism, like like class conflict, if you like. So in a way, how this type of a uh, Hatred-driven popular movements been emerging out of of this big big global social transformation is really driven by this kind of a, in a way a kind of like a class conflict I would argue and the way we try to label it or name it uh, back then um, or in, even in other papers was was this kind of a tricky like a trade-off or almost like this kind of a dilemma we called that 
was this kind of anti-populist democrats, the kind of liberal democracy that was mm-hmm. the kind of very neoliberal periods, vis-a-vis the contender uh, anti-democratic populist uh, who would actually, you know, really contrast or 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 challenge. As, as Cecilia said in the introduction, this whole setup of the kind of liberal democratic order, in a way, at least in rhetoric, a very anti-establishment or an anti-liberal democrats, what they even themselves call, called the illiberal. That's that's what they really meant by that. So this kind of a popular movement or popularism, it, it doesn't only reflect on the fact how popular these guys are, but in a way it, it's the negative of how unpopular the previous regime right. has, has really become and how you know people were mobilized in a way against more against something than than for something. And I think this is where even this kind of a notion of hatred comes into the picture. We wouldn't understand this type of a populism without the mobilization capacity you know, targeted against, you know, certain topics, against certain groups, against against something as a kind of antagonistic movement. I think that's that's the kind of populism that we see under these far-right illiberal regimes. Yeah, I mean, I obviously, this is something, a theme that we've discussed extensively on this podcast, but I mean, here it really does strike me as it being the end of the end of history and these um, politicians and movements being very exemplary of this transformation because what they really say ultimately is, you know, to a certain extent, passion, dissensus, disagreement, anger, um, you know, at, at a very kind of effective level that these things are back, um, that the old consensus politics is over. But ultimately when you drill down and reading through the book, it struck me actually um, maybe against your intention. I don't know. Um, the reading through the book that uh, how similar actually a lot of these politicians are the politics um, of these uh, you know the politics of hate I guess to put them to put it in, in, in a name or national populist or authoritarian populist whatever um, how similar they are actually to the regimes that precede precede them and the politicians that precede them and the real strong point of their divergence comes through at the most kind of stylistic level um, so it's you know it's rhetoric uh, its language, its um, style, its milieu and milieu that they appeal to and milieu that their supporters come from. You know, so that's, I think, the the thing that seems most resounding ultimately when you try to make these comparisons. As you kind of, I think, point out through the book, most of them actually sustain neoliberal political economy across the transition from one government to the other, even in cases where the government's been in power for a very long time. Yeah, absolutely. So, um Again, and, and, and I still referring back to this or your first question on the hatred, because in a way we like like these leaders are really important as 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 particular figures, but I think in our discussion we didn't really want to narrow or focus down only onto the kind of individual leadership style per se, but to understand the role of these leaders in, in a broader political context or in a broader context of the movement. But for sure, one thing we can say that these are in a way, uh, very charismatic leaders. Uh, so there's there's a, a role of some kind of a political charisma that creates a kind of a legitimacy, and that's a super important thing because because as we just said, this this whole transformation that we see occurring in these countries, they didn't really come out of the blue, or it's not just this you know building up something. It's in in, in a very you know general way, it's more about the collapse of something and how mm. certain political elements. 
uh, can actually capitalize on the fact that there is this, this, this general dismantling of institutions, of legitimacy of previous regimes, of a class conflict. So this is, this is really a, both the product of a very deep-rooted structural crisis as well as, as uh, Cecilia, I think, already hinted on, a, a kind of reproducing the crisis. So they, they both come from the crisis, but they create or, or even escalate the crisis in a way. So especially in relation to this kind of institutional breakdown, I think that's where charisma comes into the picture as some form of a source of legitimacy Uh in in, in the politics. And so each cases are obviously quite different. How, you know, how, you know, the kind of institutional legacy we had, it's different in Brazil than in Hungary. Uh, But the way, you know, how, for example, a charismatic leader can capitalize on that, that that's very comparable. In the case of Hungary, I think, and, and again, the, the analysis is in the book, so I don't necessarily want to go into too much into detail, but we really saw a very striking, massive collapse of the whole liberal institutional setup. It was it was really almost like burned down to the ground in the, in the global crisis of 2008 and 2009, and Orban and his regime is clearly the product of that. They really came into as a response to even to the economic crisis at the time. Time. And ever since then, they they are in this again. I guess I sort of mentioned it in this kind of like a crisis manage managing mode. Like they they are really, if if there were like just no crisis, that's to me that would be a really big question. What <laughs> guys would do? What what where they can't the do business people? as usual. Basically, they yeah. This is really not a business in usual type of of politics, at least on the surface. And there's this other question, maybe we come back to that later, how on the other hand, in in real hard, you know, politics or or many of their kind of like public policies, they are also in a way more of the continuation of, of actually even the previous regime, how neoliberal, industrial, sometimes class politics are you know, not reversed or undone or or even there there is no like a coalition building or compromises being sought for. It's it's a very dynamic and massive escalation of the kind of neoliberal, you know, legacy they, they carrying on. I think Alex, your comments really hit on the tragedy of this phenomenon that you have voters that support these kinds of leaders because they're uh, legitimately frustrated with the old sort of liberal capitalist order, but they end up voting for folks who continue the systems of economic exclusion, but gain their popularity, gain their crisis through politics that undo, through, through styles that undo previous politics of inclusion. Right? So if yeah. we think, for example, about, about Bolsonaro in Brazil, and a lot of these guys, they're, they're, they're part of the politics of hate is absolutely this reaction to previous policies of inclusion. So we know that Bolsonaro is a huge figurehead for undoing racial quotas, for for really uh, justifying the demonization of the quote-unquote banjidu, who of course is a euphemism for young black men. But the politics of economic exclusion that arguably uh, are the most damaging and, and the real root causes of, of uh, the frustrations that voters felt, these were continued and exacerbated. Same thing with Duterte. Duterte 
continued all of the economic policies. He actually said he continued the, he actually said, I'm going to continue the economic policies of my last two predecessors because it's going fine. So this, this clamor for systemic change and wanting anti-systemic candidates actually resulted in candidates who are anti-systemic in the sense that uh, uh, they uh, don't say what's politically correct. They say things that are extreme. They they uh, ride on and then re-foment hate. But when it comes to economic systems and class structures, they're completely uh, more of the same. Hey there, do you like what you're hearing? This episode was initially released exclusively to patrons at patreon.com slash bungacast. Each month, subscribers get at least two original episodes not released elsewhere. These include extended interviews, dedicated analyses of present history, be it the threat of nuclear war or the new politics of gender, and episodes with regular guests. $10 subscribers also get access to our reading club, where we carry out in-depth discussions of key works to understand our times. We started the year discussing human freedom and the question of time through Martin Hagelin's This Life. In the middle part of the year, we're looking at Jürgen Habermas's legitimation crisis, and we'll finish off the year by examining where globalization is at now through Giovanni Arrighi's Adam Smith in Beijing. Hope to see you there at patreon.com slash bungacast. And if not, please do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to my conversation with Tamas and Cecilia. This obviously all nevertheless draws a lot of panicky headlines and discussions about, you know, the rise of right wing populism and so on. Um, in many cases, you know, justified horror at the vulgarization of politics and society um, that many of these leaders oversee. But at the same time, as you've been saying, a lot of continuity with the past. So part of that story and part of the way that this is often discussed, particularly um, from the viewpoint of, of um, you know, media in the global north is of, um, you know, it, things were meant to be moving towards democracy, um, but now that they, but now they've reversed and that's bad and we don't really know why that's happening, <laughs> basically. Uh, and, you know, that that is part of the, the whole end of history narrative um, of the expectations of a swing towards democracy, that democracy, liberal democracy had won, um, and that there is no real alternative. Um, and these governments seem to be suggesting, yes, there is an alternative, but not necessarily the, the one that you were expecting, um, particularly if you were on the left. Um, but what it, it seems to expose as well is how weak democracy was over the 90s and 2000s and even into the 2010s in the cases where um, some of these leaders weren't yet in, in, in power, hadn't yet won office, for example, in, in Brazil, um, which is the case I'm most familiar with, obviously. Uh so, you know, you, you can, I, I was also, I, this struck me when reading the uh, Sicilia chapter on the Philippines, which is that, you know, you don't really have real substantial organic political parties. Um, dynastic politics is the, mostly the name of the game. It's what family name you have and whether that's a recognizable one, um, someone who's been in power before, most likely. Um, and so I think that also kind of examining the these kind of right populist figures in the global periphery reveals 
how maybe a lot of the enthusiasm about democratic consolidation after the end of the Cold War was really a lot of bluster, and it was maybe less thoroughgoing and substantial than a lot of people pretended it was. Yeah, I absolutely think that's right. Um, again, I think there was there's this long-standing assumption that if you have free and fair elections, that's the basis, and everything will follow. Um, and we've seen that that's not true. These five cases certainly show it. Uh, the uh, examples in the global north show it as well. I think there's also been this this um, assumed relationship between. Uh, economic development and democracy. Certainly, uh, Jaworski and others have written a lot about this expectation that development and democracy go hand in hand, or at least a certain level of economic development um, would prevent democratic backsliding. Um, And what is really interesting for us to explore in this book is that we argue that it's particularly the nature of capitalist development in the last uh, certainly since the Thatcher area in the last 30, 40 years, that uh, we can draw a direct line between that and this kinds of hatred politics because of things like the myth of meritocracy, believing that people who have stuff actually deserve it, and thus people who don't have stuff are less deserving, and thus it's okay to demonize them in society. Um, The logic of constant competition and individualism. And so I'm not worried about the collective. I'm worried about myself, entrepreneurship, gig economy, everybody's an island and everybody's in constant competition. That's certainly what we see as a a cross-ranging theme, as well as, again, this obsession with with consumption. Um, And so even when, when you don't have consolidated parties and even I mean the five cases that we talk about are are, are have cases like the Philippines that have um, forgive me for any other Filipinas but no real uh, mainstream political parties uh, and then you have uh, examples like India where where the Modi's party is really well consolidated and has an actual ideology is, and has been around for generations Um but in all cases, we see sort of the rise of uh, a figure, a central charismatic figure that absolutely uh, takes advantage of this idea that there's a deserving class and an undeserving class um, that goes hand in hand with who, quote unquote, deserves to have more in terms of uh, uh, economics and development. This it, it's all yeah, self-reinforcing in terms of both justifying uh, the closure of democratic space as well as justifying hatred and, and violent forms of politics in order to, quote-unquote, cleanse society of these these miscreants who are holding back our collective development. Mm. I mean, well, so I want to come back to this. You said finished with development, and I want to come back to that question in, in a bit because I think that's something that's often overlooked. Just in general, no one talks about development these days, I think, in a serious way. Um, But uh, I wanted to make one comparison with the politics of the global north, um, and maybe it's more of a contrast. So a lot of the basis for populism in the West, and I mean, I'm one of those who hold that basically all politics is all politics is populist today in in the global north. Um, And the basis for that is a hollowing out of politics, of political parties. Um, 
and that allows that po political entrepreneurs under the guise of populism to make a play at being democratic without um, there really being the substance of democracy as there once was in terms of party building, civic associations, and so on. What's interesting, and one of the kind of important dividing lines between these different figures, which you examine uh, in the book, is that some build parties and movements around themselves or benefit from uh, pre-existing movements, whereas others really don't. I mean, I you know, uh, a lot of the discussion in Brazil has been about, you know, whether Bolsonaro is a fascist and so on. And I mean, one of the things that was notable about Bolsonaro is that he failed even to create a new political party. Um, and this is in a situation where you have, you know, 33 political parties in Brazil and massively fragmented systems. So you'd think it would be easy just to add another one. And he, not even that he, he succeeded in doing. And then you have like probably the, the opposite end of the spectrum, someone like Modi, who, who benefits from this mass organization, quite a dense network of, a, of civic organizations and so on. So maybe talk us through this and, and some of the examples of this and what maybe you think the significance is of it. Um, well, I'll, I'll speak first about the Philippines and Brazil because those are the, uh, they're my areas of expertise. And I think they're the most similar in that... Um, uh, except for for some notable exceptions, of course, PT, PSOL, you don't really have the, um, you have a, a, lots of parties that have no ideological center, and so yes, it would be easy to just create a new party. But both Bolsonaro and Duterte weren't interested in creating new parties. Uh, Bolsonaro was a center of gravity for quite a long time. But he decided to to uh, not put effort into consolidating a party. He decided to uh, uh, run without a party. Same thing with Duterte. Duterte's inner circle was had a lot of plans for using the budget of the Department of the Interior to do base building and create an organized party. Um, but they, at the end of the day, the figure wasn't interested in that. Um, so these are not... Uh, the fascists of all that are like creating an organization, they're riding on something that perhaps it's a, a feeling of having direct uh, uh, communication with folks. Um, but I think more than that, it's the feeling of if you build an organization, then there's going to be accountability to that organization. And so they would rather ride on this ideology of, you know, Go to work, go home, keep your head down, leave it up to to the strict father who's going to take care of you and don't pay attention. Uh, just call, come into the streets when I call you. But besides that, there's no need for you to participate. Um, right. so just sorry to interrupt, but I mean, hearing you say that, I was going to say, well, but hang on. But I mean, again, maybe drawing too much from the Brazilian case, but Bolsonaro and Bolsonarismo was based on high degree of mobilization for his base, albeit... Um, as you maybe hint at in more a sporadic form in, in terms of bringing people out onto the street rather than um, sustained commitment to an organization. Well, exactly. And I think, I think that's the important distinction to make. It's really interesting that both Bolsonaro and Duterte had incredible turnout for their campaign rallies and also for protests as we saw in Brazil after, after Bolsonaro's defeat. But as far as sort of sustained movements or the building of an organic organization with either Bolsonaro or Duterte as the head of an organized sort of consistent force just wasn't there. Another thing we saw is that even though um, uh, a year or two in, into uh, their regimes, 
the opposition was incredibly weak, yet opposition rallies regularly had more attendance than than rallies called by the presidents themselves, even though the presidents were using government funds to physically bring people to these rallies. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I mean, Tamash, I don't know if you have if you want to comment on um, these sort of organizational questions um, in Hungary or any of the other cases. Yes, because because here, yeah, we, we see a bit of uh, differences, and and uh, like Duterte and Bolsonaro are are more comparable in this sense of not having that solidly institutionalized formal like party background or or institutional background, but they still had some kind of capacity to mobilize. Orban in Hungary is probably closer to um, to Erdogan in Turkey or 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 the mentioned Modi as someone having a, a party for for a very long time. He's actually he's, he himself was a party cutter and and we cannot really understand his political trajectory and career without really considering how this party called Fides, where it really came from in the even in the late states socialist period in the 80s and how then it had actually many transformation and ideological metamorphoses ended up where, where it is now. Other than that, maybe one thing I, I wanted to um, highlight and that's peculiar to the Hungarian case is that it's not even only the party that matters because in the kind of neoliberal era, what happened, this, this collapse, this kind of dismantling of the institution obviously affected the parties as well. So the parties kind of lost connections to their you know, popular base. Uh, and, and many of these older liberal left parties are still in a kind of a crisis of not being able to actually connect even to their own constituencies too well. And of course, the state doesn't help them to 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 to, to do that whereas uh orban he really kind of mobilized he actually started building up uh, a movement uh, even outside of the party in the early 2000s so him coming into the power was it had obviously many forces and elements like coming together during this this crisis in 2008 and 2009 but one thing he was constantly and systematically doing since the early 2000s when he was first voted out of power was that he kind of tried to build up a political movement that is not only inside the party, but what they call the civic uh, organizations or civic movement, like little cells, like local cells. And he tried to play with this kind of a bottom-up social movement, but at some point captured by the party and it became like a top-down you know, almost like a mechanism for for electoral mobilization. So it's not, I wouldn't really call it a social movement. To, 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 to a large extent, it was either dismantled after their landslide victory or actually fractions of this civic organization uh, was detached from Fidesz, uh, interestingly, afterward. And the new far-right mobilization that is, was uh, even further to the far than Fidesz came from these organizations originally created by the Fidesz. And a lot of these dynamics that is even pressurizing or pushing Fidesz to go more and more to the to the right is coming from this challenge and the, this dynamic between the kind of party system, if you like, and these really radical, you know, organizations and, and movements mm-hmm. uh, that were born out of this, this, this crisis. 
No, that's really interesting. I mean, I, I think I'll start to believe that things have really begun to change, um, not necessarily for the better, but I mean, to a certain extent that history has restarted. If there is genuine evidence of a return to organic politics, I mean, in the sense of um, rooted mass organizations, bottom up, um, being able to hold party leaders accountable, and, and but even if they might be, you know, cast as um, or indeed be forces of the political right, I think nevertheless, that would be pretty significant. And it's interesting, I guess, that the cases you examine present a pretty mixed bag, I guess, on, on that count. I want to turn to, um, I guess, what is maybe the primary kind of proposal proposition of your book, which is that the politics of the global south or of the global periphery are different from the global north. And it's you can't just read one off from the other, um, that they're not just the same or, or um, even worse in a kind of modernization theory <laughs> lens of just thinking, well, the, the south is just behind the north and um, it's just following behind it or it's a kind of degenerate version of what happens in the imperial core. No, in fact, that these are um, driven by their own unique dynamics. And um, I think you kind of put this pointedly in trying to draw the contrast between the global north and the global south when looking at these kind of new authoritarian populists by by asking if these countries saw GDP growth over the preceding period, um, you saw the rise of new middle classes coming out of poverty. Um, you, in many cases, had more civil rights, um, liberties and protections in the past. So, if, if you have this kind of generally sort of positive story, why a turn to right-wing authoritarianism? Why a break from um, the, the, the previous um, regimes? Why from the previous kind of neoliberal, even sometimes progressive neoliberal regimes, um, if things seem to be going well? Which is a story which is rather different to the story which one would tell about, um, about countries of the global north over the same period. Yes. Well, um, again, I, I, I assume that we might find like quite significant differences amongst these cases here. So I'll, I'll say a few things about Hungary, which might resemble a little bit more to the global north in this respect. Uh, one thing for sure that uh, this kind of a previous neoliberal regime, uh, as I've mentioned, collapsed and it really had its... in built in contradictions. Uh, and the final uh, sort of uh, death of, of that regime was really when the kind of middle classes experienced the crisis very badly. So it wasn't really, it, 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 it economically, it was not a really uh, glorious catching up period at all. In fact, it goes back to, to, to one of your previous questions of, of what is this really contradictions about this kind of a liberal democracy in the semi-periphery in Eastern Europe in this particular case is that, you know, this democracy and development, they, they, they don't really match too well in this case. That's I would argue that's a very, actually, in a Western-centric approach because what happened in this region was that democracy came with a massive crisis, right? With the collapse of state socialism, mm -hmm. deindustrialization, shock therapy, like the, the social and economic experience under quote-unquote democracy was, was really devastating to the majority of the people from, from day one. Uh, whichever they we want to choose as 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 a, as a beginning uh, of this historical process. So this was certainly democracy did not bring in any development. In fact, the kind of a historical memory 
and that's ideological to some extent. So, uh, but it's like when you had a massive expansion, industrial industrialism, massive labor movements, state interventions in, in in this region, that was rarely associated with democracy. That was usually some kind of authoritarian regime. It actually leads to the big question, which we a little bit try to touch upon in the book. I, I I'm not sure we had any kind of conclusive remark on that whether even to understand these illiberal uh, regimes like if they industrialize if they if they you know mobilize you have this much more like a state capitalist interventionist approach is it a kind of a development uh, if at all or not uh, the short answer is it not really, but but you, you had a discussion about that actually about Hungary. You you have arguments even on the left that you know Orban is a kind of a authoritarian developmentalist. It's, it's a kind of a developmental state attempt. Um, I, I disagree with that, but what I would just try to say that you know this problematics led to this question to to kind of how we want to understand it, and the problematics, the kind of contradiction, really comes from this. Democracy and development was was not happening here during the during the neoliberal phase, and in that sense, I I, I would argue here that you know the kind of way it was dismantled. It was, it was, I wouldn't say like democracy was was too weak in Hungary or was not strong enough. No, it's 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 much more than that. It was really built on so deep contradictions that that's in order to understand where Orban comes from, we really have to deeper in history and understand what was the contradiction in neoliberalism. Right. And I mean, that role of disappointment is very strong, I think, across most of the cases. It's certainly the case with Brazil, where you have a legitimation crisis and then um, a massive economic crisis and kind of rise of anti-political, anti-corruption movement. And um, that all leads to, to Bolsonaro, as regular listeners will will know and have listened to us talk about on this podcast um, at length over a number of uh, episodes. Um, but I wonder, in, in the Philippines, I think, Maybe that is that question of disappointment so clear cut. Um, there was, you know, relatively strong growth um, before Duterte. Uh, what kind of motivated the, the, you know, supposedly authoritarian populist turn? I think the Philippines is probably a more clear cut case of wag the dog. Um, I mean, even although there was this economic crisis in Brazil and and the golpe and everything. Um, I, Lula was an incredibly popular candidate before he was disqualified to run against Bolsonaro. Like, like by all survey results, he would have won against Bolsonaro if they had ran against each other in 2018. Um, in the Philippines, the, the president immediately preceding Duterte also had over 50% approval um, as he was leaving office. But I think this these societies have a lot of latent frustrations that we've spoken about. The idea that, and something that contrasts with the global North is that um, living in these countries, being parts of these societies, uh, you get the feeling that that people feel that their country is like uh, a racehorse that's ready to go, but its reins are being held Mm. back. uh, that's something that we say in the Philippines. It's something a common joke in in Brazil is like Brazil has everything's perfect, no natural disasters, perfect weather, lots of natural resources. But it's because of the politicians that we're not uh, the global leader that we should be. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so these latent frustrations were something that these leaders were able to tap into, and the recognition something that that 
is also kind of ironic that is that it took these leaders who again in all their actuations represented the status quo or returned to even more more uh, draconian times um, that they were the ones who pointed out it's the system that's broken whereas the left had been saying that you know for decades but but it was these guys who got a lot of traction by saying the system is broken um, we need to redo the whole thing um, and so uh, that that message really stuck combined with uh you know what we see in the U- in, in the global north is a lot of a lot of analysis about the perceived economic threat because of real i mean real economic threat real wage stagnation real um uh, uh, uh a lack of growth in real terms um in in a lot of places in the South, especially the Philippines, what, what, we, what we see is threat to go back to what I was. I, who am now part of the ascendant middle class, I don't want to be poor again. I want to distance myself from that which uh, from which I came from. And so um, the need to now see oneself as part of the the acceptable side of society as mm-hmm. part of no longer part of this underclass that is holding the country back and also not a supporter of these corrupt old politicians that are holding the country back. I want something new and, and out there, which yeah. again, to your listeners might be, I, your listeners are probably thinking, wait, but all of these politicians were part of the old class. So how does it make sense? But they were able to sell themselves in such a way to distinguish themselves, even if just performatively. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I mean that at least in, in you know is relatively similar to a lot of the global north, and or at least many of the cases. Um, you know, Trump might have not might not have been a politician, but he's obviously rubbing shoulders with the Clintons and whoever else. Um, I, the question of this new class, I think, is really interesting. And although there's maybe a, a sort of correlate in the global north, in insofar as right wing populism draws as its basis, I think, a kind of, you know, provincial petty bourgeoisie, provincial kind of middle class, lower middle class in certain cases, and their maybe their fear of proletarianization, or maybe it's just a cultural fear of um, loss of status. You know, obviously, that's a big debate, and quite a contentious one. Um, and I think it's a little bit of both personally, but um, <laughs> in any case, um, I, what's different, I think, in the cases that you draw upon um, is precisely that you have this new middle class which has actually risen up um which has and i think you know new middle class is euphemistic or at least it's a kind of more of a sociological or marketing category certainly doesn't make sense in in marxist terms but it's a it's a more affluent proletarian right i think is that you you would agree with that um that it's more affluent affluent working class who's now able to maybe afford a fridge and a tv a car able to send their kids to university for the first time um, but in fact, we're still working class, but have a lot to lose um, and a lot to lose also from crime, which I think is something that you highlight, uh, Cecilia, in the Filipino case, and which is definitely recognizable in the Brazilian case as well. Um, maybe you want to talk us through um, what this new middle class is and um, how it perceives the world, why it has opted for um, the leaders that it has, why it actually forms the, in many ways the base of, of some, of these, um, some of these movements. 
Yeah, well, I think you pointed out uh, a lot of the important characteristics. So when we think about class identity, another characteristic of, of neoliberal capitalism as it's developed in recent years is this this reconfiguration of uh, class relationships and class conflicts, which is also something that that Dimash, uh, uh spoke about. So uh, instead of class identity being based on sort of profession or or uh, the relationships you have with other working people, we see that class is increasingly identified through consumption, through ownership of, as you said, white goods, small electronics. Um, you know, in, a lot of times in Brazil, the first time a family gets a refrigerator or a car, they'll say, oh, now so genshi, now I'm a person. Um, uh, same thing in the Philippines. So if someone has like a, a $1,000 motorbike or or not even $1,000, a $500 motorbike or refrigerator, they say, now we're not poor anymore. Um, and it, it seems that this, this, we also sort of shied away from making a hard definition, a hard economic or even Marxist definition of what we mean by the new quote unquote middle class. But it's clear that there's a large cohort of people that feel they are the new middle class. It's been a marketing strategy of governments throughout the 90s that that there's this ascendant class. Um, people prefer not to think of themselves as poor. People do have disposable income for the first time, but they consume. And so they have things that they're afraid to lose that are connected to their sense of identity and self-worth. And so the fear of losing that motorbike or that cell phone or that refrigerator uh, uh, is something that leader, these leaders can tap into when they go and demonize and fomentate against the banjido, whoever that is, or against the tambay, whoever that is. Um, and so, and we also see this uh, reflected in the way that these leaders present themselves. Certainly, I mean, Bolsonaro presents himself as like middle class, uh, father of the family. One of his most uh, um, well-known political ads was like, you know, the dad in front of the barbecue in what looks like a traditional sort of middle class backyard. Duterte as well, one of his most popular uh, uh, attempts at policy that was actually unable to enforce was what he called an anti-tambay ordinance, which is not allowing people to sit on the street in the night. Now, the Philippines is a tropical country. It gets up to like 35 degrees Celsius, even at nighttime. Um, and so if you're a poor person without an air conditioning, you need to sit outside. So this idea of, of good people stay inside their homes is a very mm. middle class conception for people who have big homes with air conditioners. Um, and so all of this is to say that that the the connection of these guys' images to the aspiration of what established middle class is uh, is absolutely a tool to appeal to this upcoming middle class that, as you so well put, is actually still very precarious and so thus sensitive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's a, obviously a kind of strong respectability politics at play there, um, a politics of aspiration and respectability, which the left, I think, has been unable to tap into. 
Um, and I, I wonder, you know, this idea, which actually surprised me, I wasn't so aware that it was, um, it was a sort of discourse that was mobilized in, across many of these cases, but that of kind of the good citizen, right? The good citizen against the bad citizen to be excluded. And you hint at one of the reasons why this sort of politics has emerged very strongly in these cases, which is that these are all countries, or a lot of them, um, which generate a huge surplus population, which can be seen as disposable, um, and that that's the reason, perhaps, for um, for the for the for the for the emergence of this politics, because it speaks to a genuine um, conflict um, or tension between the working class and the underclass, or to put it that way, or maybe um, you know the kind of um, you know, affluent working class or middle, new middle class and, uh, and, and the kind of poor working class, however you want to conceive of it, various different, you know, terminologies are available for this. But, um, but basically, you know, um, a lot of the discussion about populism has often been between about, you know, against the elite or between the kind of market-based middle classes versus the more, um, you know, state aligned middle classes or the NGOs or the PMC or whatever, kind of talking about the upper ranges of society. But I think what's interesting, especially in these cases in the periphery, is precisely that it's a class conflict quite low down in the social order. And that's what's um, going on there. I don't know if you want to comment on that, uh, Tamash. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I, I agree with, with you all. And, and that's kind of happening in Hungary too, how this kind of uh, middle classization, maybe if that word exists, is a process of creating an otherwise pretty heterogeneous group. So it's, we know it's not a really a analytical category to call these different people middle class, but through various policies, in the case of Hungary, by the way, very pro-natalist, like a, almost like a biopolitical language through the, you know, the kind of notion of the Christian family and having you know, many kids type of a thing contrasted to the issue of migration. So, or or the very nationalistic elements of this rhetoric, they're all creating this kind of a notion of a middle class who is the kind of middle class the regime wants to rely on or mobilize or rather create. So it's both an idea or an ideology as, as well as there are this kind of a consumerist policies or in the case of Hungary, for example, you know, subsidizing, you know, uh, mortgages or like housing loans. It's, it's a lot of the things that are organized around housing. So this is one thing which which is very important. And I think it's... Uh, it, it goes even beyond these particular regimes. So in a kind of cap- capitalist society, this kind of a middle class, creating this kind of a middle class is, 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 is a political, you know, it's a political necessity almost. Uh, that's that's how the neoliberal regi- regime worked too. And then they could not deliver or service th- those groups and their ideology, you know, became like hollow, then, then the whole regime collapsed. The other, other element I just wanted to quickly add, and that's more like the political economy of, of the Hungarian case, is what we call the domestic capitalist class. So, so the question of how these regimes reintegrate into the world economy, what's the relationship with the kind of big capital, which is typically not domestic national capital. That's 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 the kind of legacy. That's a long historical legacy of you know, inter- how the economy was integrated and that's very international capital. 
German industry or you know European banks in the case of Hungary, and what's the what's the role of the kind of domestic capitalist class and how you 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 would rather see this kind of a symbiosis between between these state managers, if you like, charismatic leaders, representing again not only just a you know nationalist Christian middle class movement, but they really. In the case of Hungary, they really try to create some kind of a capital as well, and 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 become like you know like a, it's that, that's why some people would argue it's almost like a developmentalist attempt in the you know post crisis twenty first century mm-hmm. that they would really the state becomes very interventionist. It has like flagship companies, it has its own oligarchy, it has its own industrialization agenda. So it's it's trying to. And that's what we argue in our chapter to somehow realign in the global capitalist sphere on behalf of this kind of a local domestic capitalist class. To bring Turkey and India into the conversation, so we haven't paid them a lot of attention so far, that this is also something we see in these two societies. Uh, in Turkey, we see the... the um, uh, Really, Erdogan really taking advantage of this tension between sort of the older, more secular middle classes and the newer, more religious uh, um, uh, middle classes or, or lower middle classes and what that means also for respectability politics and morality politics. We also see in India, as well as in the Philippines, the targeting of diaspora communities who are a big driver of, of new middle class ascension um, so, so there's an implication for, for class tensions and class restructuring, but there's also implications for respectability politics in a colonial sense that, you know, once you're working in the global north and making pounds or making dollars or making euros, uh, how do you view and thus how do your relatives that are back in the old country view the, the quote unquote surplus population? Oh, very good. I wonder, you know, maybe this leads on from that, whether these kind of authoritarian populists, national populists, and so on, are eating the left's lunch. I mean, we haven't really even spoken about the left. And I wonder what degree uh, there has been of class dealignment, which is, of course, is something that's very much discussed in the United States, um, and to a certain extent across Western Europe, the rise of a Brahmin left, the phenomenon of working class increasingly voting for the right, um, maybe in the far right. How much is this the case across the cases that you examine in your book? Um, And to what extent is it, I mean, you know, I want to ask this question specifically because there's a tendency, um, and I say this, you know, um, being very guilty of this myself, to describe every kind of political phenomenon as merely a facet of the left's disappearance, of uh, the undoing of the workers' movement, and so on. And while that's true, we should probably be maybe a little bit specific about it. So I'm interested in the the cases um, and how it works in the countries that you discuss. Yeah, one of my, I distinctly remember campaigning during the 2016 elections as a, a member of a leftist party in the Philippines and going around to urban poor communities and saying, oh, so who do you think you're going to vote for? And people saying, we like Duterte. Well, what do you like about what Duterte says? We like that he says he doesn't believe in labor contractualization and he's going to end that. And he's saying, oh, my God, we've been saying this for the past 20 years. Do you just not believe us or do you believe him more? Um, so, yes, uh, 
these guys certainly are eating the left's lunch. They're, they're um, certainly in Duterte's case, he promised a lot of, of on the campaign trail, he promised a, a lot of things that um, seem to have uh, to be in line with, with progressive priorities. So uh, anti-labor contractualization, um, pro even LGBT rights, um, uh, socialized housing, ending mining. And this uh, actually resulted in splits among some parts of the left because uh, some parts of the left were not uh, uh, willing to campaign against him. Um, of course, once he got into power, none of that was fulfilled. He right away said, okay, well, we're going to work on labor rights, but you guys aren't allowed to strike. Um, and of course, there were no no uh, improvements in labor or housing and concessions to mining like on 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 after less than a month um so it's it's to think about what this means for the left it certainly means that there's a credibility problem in the philippines because for some reason people believe that this candidate could actually get it done, whereas we've been saying it for so long and yet never have had anyone who came near winning the presidency. Um, um, yeah, I mean, I think find that interesting because there are, um, I mean, you know, the, the example that you give, it's not that their concerns are purely culturally conservative, for example, or even um, what would be understood as economically right wing, for example, to be purely concerned with entrepreneurialism and the right to set up your own business, but that there are uh, demands there which are um, egalitarian, um, things which are rooted in labor's perspective. Uh, So they're not, you know, they're not right wing demands or left wing demands, which are expected to be answered by right wing populists. I find that quite interesting. I don't know if um, you find that to be the case across some of the other um, countries. I guess it's it's complicated to 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 see all the countries all at once, but I, I see patterns of of this general phenomena you you've mentioned, and in the in the case of Hungary in particular, yeah. So it's again not just that the left has been weak or there's a legitimacy issue here, but you know what led up to to Orban and the illiberal regime was was really that the previous. Uh, actually left liberal parties, they did not embrace labor at all. And in fact, they, they were the very neoliberals. So we, we totally understand where their legitimacy crisis is coming from in terms in terms of party politics, at least, or, or regime formation. And uh, so one thing we are struggling with in Hungary is that, okay, you have to actually rebuild the left because that's those, those guy, guys that still sometimes call themselves the left, they... They're not really on the left, uh, and 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 one big challenge for for the kind of new new left, um, which is still like super marginalized. Like how how are we gonna do that? Like we cannot just enter into party politics easily because that's that's that reproduces a lot of the contradictions. So how are we gonna do like yeah more organic, you know, movement building thing? Uh, and at what stage are we going to engage with the sort of parliamentary party politics? And yeah, so the problem is that. On the other hand, that these regimes, like a, the left's lunch or, or other, they incorporated a lot of the labor's, you know, aspirations. I mean, in, in, in a very contradictory way, 
and and just 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 to give a little bit of an example, we we, we discuss it in our in our chapter more extensively. What is called in Hungary the workfare regime that they initiated this public workfare program in areas which was like chronically under underemployed, like really the kind of surplus population concentrated there, and those places were really neglected by the kind of neoliberal neoliberals. In fact, those those were almost like scapegoated, and this, these were like very ghettoized communities. And how contradictory and ironic it was when when Orban introduced this public workfare regime that was designed in a way to kind of reintegrate these people into the labor market, although in a very clientelistic way and, and, and making sure that the political benefits will go to the party, then the neoliberals, they, they didn't get it for, for almost like a decade. They they were really criticized. They thought like this public workfare initiative is like a wasteful thing. It's against the meritocracy. It's just, it's just this kind of a shallow populist thing. And they just didn't get it that it was actually popular on, on, mm-hmm. on in those areas. Because of the past, because of how devastated it had become during the kind of shock therapy period, and and so again, as I said, this is a very contradictory thing. But they did bring in some notions and embracement of of labor, especially in the in the most marginalized groups, that benefited them greatly in the electoral system. Mm, uh, that's genuinely fascinating. Um, that's very something to um, to ponder. I think um, I want to. F- to finish, you know, trying to close here, uh, to finish on something that I think might be somewhat universal um, across both core and periphery. But just before that, I wanted to ask you whether there's anything you'd like to mention, anything that uh, I haven't mentioned that we or asked you about, which you'd like to highlight that um, is something that is different about all of these figures and cases that we've been discussing uh, in the periphery versus the core, or what people um, perhaps in uh, Western Europe and North America might miss about some of these um, political phenomena, leaders, movements, etc. I think something important, and also to be fair to the left, is that um, in most cases, the the left of these countries is constrained by reality, whereas the rhetoric of, of these leaders is not. Right. And so they can um, say, you know, tomorrow I'm going to do away with all corruption and offer these really simplistic, easily digestible, social media friendly solutions that are catchy, that are repeatable. Whereas um, the left uh, sometimes has paralysis analysis and the left will come up, you know, have endless debates about how to come up with an actual good policy that um, is then difficult to communicate. And that's the nature of being constrained by actually wanting to do something. Um, the other important factor and that Thomas alluded to and I think is is really lost in the global north is the role of clientelism. And so when we think about when we think about um, you know, we have these right-wing leaders, anti-democratic leaders who are popular. They're not just, they're not right-wing in the sense that that we think about the right-wing in the North, that they don't spend anything at all. They don't spend government money. They are for privatization of markets. They are for, you know, letting the capital class control industry with limited to no government regula- regulation, but they absolutely use government money to get these short-term victories to buy stuff for people, whether it be uh, toilets or low-cost, low-quality housing, um, uh, um, whether it be um, 
you know, food packs at Christmas time, you name it. And that's another challenge to the left is that the left, uh, I think, has this struggle between being relevant and addressing the immediate economic needs of families that need food and to pay hospital bills and to pay for scholarships for their kids, but not creating this uh, uh, clientelist relationship, which is something that takes a lot more investment and is a lot more difficult to explain and takes manpower. Um, uh yeah. Yeah. So that's no. I, I I think that's great. I think that um, it's great that you highlight that. I would like to underscore it. I think clientelism is not uh, something that's insufficiently discussed um, these days, and um, in some ways, it's kind of the natural form of politics when you don't really have the kind of old ideological politics anymore. Um, and uh, and maybe that's coming to you too um, if you live somewhere in the global north. Anyway, that's one um, maybe to think about for the future. But I don't know if Thomas, you wanted to highlight any. Thing else before um, I turn to maybe the one thing I think which un- unites all of these. Yeah, sure. I was also thinking about one one element here, maybe like like a message to the to the to our global audience is that yeah, this we're still talking about a global story, no matter how like specific examples we pick, and these are related. So even like the global north and the south, they are different but not unrelated. We are we are all part of the kind of global capitalist development in a very uneven and, and, and contradictory way. And so these the, even these regions or these notions of North and South are some kind of a co-production of the same, same processes. And so what I mean by that, and again, I'm just going to bring in these very particular examples, maybe not the particulars, is what are, are the kind of important ones, but they highlight this interconnectedness, is, is again in the case of Hungary, for example, how... You know, a lot of the, the kind of far, far right in, in, in Western Europe really comes from, yeah, this deindustrialization and the kind of uh, old working class going down, down the drain thing, where on the other hand, you have that industry being relocated to Hungary. So Hungary is actually reindustrializing, and Orban <laughs> right. is making a lot of capitalization on that. There's a lot of money coming in from, from the very same German industry that's hitting hard the working class in Germany. Or the EU monies, this is also like a general like revenue or some kind of uh, uh, a tie between the kind of core periphery and how this regime is actually not just produced from inside because of the particular political movement they they creating or they themselves are created by, but it's 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 part of this larger story of of at least the EU or maybe the larger geopolitical story, and that's and that's where I would conclude here. Now, it, of course, it opens up a lot of question and it's it be a very big discussion. But yeah, so this kind of a geopolitics, this global embeddedness, how these countries relate to their broader environment is also very very important to understand. We do actually see. Uh, surprising parallels as well as a bit of a differences amongst or or cases uh how they relate to to how they, how they related to the covid how in the, in the book we haven't really discussed the the, the war in in russia uh, between russia and ukraine but that that could be another example but first of all how how they relate to to the rise of china the chinese uh, you know money coming in so, so this kind of a geopolitics and this whole global restructuring is a, is an important shell in which these are these regimes operate and and co- collaborate. Excellent. No, absolutely. I one final point which I wanted to draw on just to 
conclude this, and maybe this is me um, imposing my thesis on on your book, which I don't want to do, um, but maybe to throw this out there, I think one of the things which merges is the way in which all of these um, regimes, politicians, movements, etc., um, seek to undermine or crumble uh, universalism, which used to hold. And I think the case is very obvious with somewhere like Turkey and somewhere like India, both of which were uh, helmed by political parties and forces which were self-consciously secular, liberal, universalist. Um, obviously, th- th- there's many caveats to that in even in though even in the cases of Kamalism and Congress in India but nevertheless you know they they presented themselves as universalist whereas their successors um Erdogan AKP in Turkey um and Modi and the BJP in India are self-consciously and explicitly ethnically particularist um the BJP probably the most uh, the most explicit of, of these, um, but you know equally I guess in in the Philippines or um, you know maybe in Hungary and certainly in Brazil, uh, universalism is eroded in a different way, which is the end of uh, universalist uh, rights based citizenship, where rights are attached to only good citizens, not to not to everyone as a whole. And it seems to me that that not only kind of wraps together the five countries that you examine in the book, but are also something which is shared with, uh, you know, Trump or Meloni or Le Pen, um, or indeed a lot of the identity politics left for that matter, which is in all these cases, a kind of turn away from universalism. Um, and that maybe is the kind of main uniting factor. Um, I don't know if you care to comment on that. Yeah, I think that's, that's perhaps another way of putting what we mean by politics of hatred, right? Is that we have we have a variance in terms of how uh, neoliberal and how sort of economic opportunistic those are. We have a um, variance in what kinds of groups are being targeted, but there remains this this um, the creation of this class, whoever it is, that uh, should be excluded. So the definition of the nation, not by who is a part of it, but by who is not a part of it. Um, and and uh, those who are not a part of it are an existential threat that need to be either eliminated or put in their place. Thus, thus the justification of all these kinds of policies. Tamash, yeah, I, I, it's 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 a great question because it kind of both like unites these these cases and maybe even like these other cases you've mentioned, as well as also pointing at the fact how, you know, the very way it's articulated, even how the kind of universalism was articulated was, of course, different. That had a kind of local history, let's say the kind of secularism in India, Kamalism in, in Turkey. So what I see like happening in, in, in these other cases, again, I, I can bring in examples from, from Eastern Europe, that the kind of universalism was this this kind of a hege- it was a kind of hegemonic thinking right it was the kind of the the belief in the you know the universalism in the science and the rational and the market logic so it kind of combined this universal idea of the rational and the kind of you know the order that's kind of organizing the society uh, which in this case was really the market so understanding how these regimes are responding to that too, sometimes in a really weirdly provocative way, but at least in this very victimized particular positioning, is really the product of the crisis of the hegemony. <laughs> like this is this is when you know the kind of uni, you know the kind of strength of this universal 
belief system is, is, is breaking down. And yeah, people, even actually sometimes intellectuals or, well, educated people might actually question, you know, science or, or things that, you know, we tended to believe like, believe like un, unquestionable because that's the kind of truth. So in this new reality, uh, no, it's, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's really attacked. It's, it's even becoming a force to, to mobilize people uh, especially with this kind of a victimhood attitude, and that's clearly this is this is this kind of a question of the hegemony or how this kind of a previous hegemony collapsed, the kind of neoliberal hegemony, at least on that level of of the universe of ideas, has been really like breaking apart. All right, uh, fantastic stuff. I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you both very much. And I uh, would urge listeners to uh, to check out the book, The Radical Right, Politics of Hate on the Margins of Global Capital. Um, lots of good specific and general stuff in there. So if you're not familiar with what's going on in India, it's a great chapter on that in there, just as there is um, kind of broader reflections on what unites and divides uh, these different political phenomena. Thank you both very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you.